Welcome to the 311th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I discuss COVID-19 in Australia with epidemiologist and global health expert, Mary Louise McLaws. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID Calls at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 15th, 2021, there are 4,056,901 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Australia reports 912 deaths from COVID-19 in New Zealand, the government reports 26 deaths from COVID-19. Papua New Guinea reports 179 deaths from the disease. And the nation of Indonesia reports 68,219 deaths from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is coronavirus victim James Kwan described as pioneer in Western Australia's tourism industry. This was written by Herland Cower and Emily Peace and appeared the 2nd of March, 2020 in ABC News Australia. Tributes are flowing for a 78 year old West Australian man who died from coronavirus in Perth with former colleagues describing him as a pioneer in the tourism industry. James Kwan became the first Australian to die from the virus when he passed away at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth on March 1st, 2020. He contracted the disease on board the quarantined Diamond Princess cruise ship in Japan before his health deteriorated rapidly while he was in isolation in the hospital. Mr. Kwan's 79-year-old wife has also been tested, has also tested positive for the virus and remains at the same hospital in a stable condition. A reminder that this article is from early March of 2020. The physician who treated Mr. Kwan, Dr. Fiona Lake, said he was at a higher risk of dying from coronavirus due to his age and other health issues. We know this disease have, has poorer outcomes in older people and older people who have comorbidities, and unfortunately, that was the case, she said. James was pretty sick, and his wife knew that, and he was pretty sick throughout the illness, and there were a range of things that could be done to support him. But I think that unfortunately, his lungs in particular could not cope, the doctor said. It can be very challenging for patients in these kinds of circumstances, being in isolation, and it's also hard on the staff, but the nurses in particular provide superb care. James was a lovely, funny guy, and we were lucky enough to get to know him a little bit. Australian Tourism Export Council Managing Director Peter Shelley said Mr. Kwan was highly regarded in the industry and the news of his death had greatly saddened the community. He said Mr. Kwan founded specialist inbound travel agency Well Travel in 1988, and the Kwan family made a significant contribution to the Western Australia economy before expanding the business nationally. He made a great contribution as one of the pioneers, if you like, in developing tourism from any of the strong markets that we now experience wonderful visitation from, Mr. Shelley said. He had a really innovative mind, very hardworking, but very pleasant man to work with as well. He's got a major legacy as a result of his work. James was always willing to share his knowledge and help others in the industry grow and often mentored young and aspiring members of the tourism industry, he said. Passengers on board the cruise ship were placed under isolation after the virus was detected, but it continued to spread with the hundreds of people who tested positive, including another Western Australia man who was taken off the ship to be treated in Japan. Mr. Kwan and his wife were initially flown to Howard Springs in the Northern Territory where Australia's Diamond Princess evacuees were sent before arriving back in Perth. Mr. Shelley said the council had sent its heartfelt condolences to Mr. Kwan's wife, their son, and the extended family 
There's been a lot of people wishing to send on their regards and make contact to share their concerns for James and the family, he said. But we've not been in contact with any other members of the family. I think it's important, he said, to give them some time to deal with the situation. Health Minister Roger Cook also offered his condolences to the Kwan family. Our hearts and our thoughts go out to James Kwan and his family and his wife, Teresa, he said. James passed after struggling with the disease, and it must be a very sad time for them. It's a very sad time for everyone, he said. Australia's chief medical officer, Brendan Murphy, has defended the quarantine decisions made in the case of the Diamond Princess cruise ship following Mr. Kwan's death. I think our response with the Diamond Princess was exemplary, he said. We brought these people home. We have them quarantined, and a number of them have developed the disease, whereas they may have been led into the community and infected people on planes. There have been 33 confirmed cases of coronavirus in Australia. A reminder, this article is from early March of 2020. Nine of those at that time were in Queensland, nine in New South Wales, nine in Victoria, three in South Australia, and one in Tasmania, in addition to the two in Western Australia. Of the 33 people affected at that time, 15 were reported to have recovered while the remaining cases were in stable condition. Western Australia's chief health officer, Andrew Robertson, said while there had been no community spread of the virus in Australia as of that time, health authorities were planning for it to occur at some point. Part of the planning by authorities included potential fever clinics focused primarily around triage and testing, Dr. Robertson said. It could be part of an emergency department. It could be a standalone facility in a community area. It could be a temporary structure outside a hospital, he said. What it allows is for people to come in who may have respiratory illness, allows them to be seen by doctors and nurses and triaged. If they're really sick, obviously we want to get them into a hospital. If they're relatively mild, they can be sent home and we'd also test them for the disease. Dr. Robertson added that people should be going about their normal life at this point. Shouldn't be buying masks and wearing masks. There's no requirement for buying tinned food or any of the panic buying, he said. Again, a reminder that this obituary is from March of 2020. And the article was coronavirus victim James Kwan described as pioneer in Western Australia's tourism industry, the 2nd of March, 2020. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, Mary Louise McClaws. Mary Louise McClaws is a professor of epidemiology Hospital Infection and Infectious Diseases Control at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. She's a member of the World Health Organization Infection Prevention and Control Group for COVID-19. Mary Louise McClaws, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you, Scott. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, which is just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Mm. Uh, I'm calling from Sydney, Australia. And uh, today, sadly, uh, we've been told that we've had another um, uh, ooh, 60 odd cases um, uh, and we're up to 930 cases of Delta in Sydney. Delta, at, before then, we had the occasional infection that would leak out of um, quarantine because we have a hard border up. Everyone goes into quarantine. And sometimes that quarantine system is not as tight as it should be. And leaks occur because uh, it comes through uh, travellers who are released from quarantine and not tested on the last day. They may have picked up um, as happened in South Australia, picked up Kappa, uh, variant of concern, uh, went into um, Melbourne and uh, spread it. And then, of course, they had their own small link uh, with Delta from a hotel. In Sydney, on about the 11th of June this year, a driver uh, related to the whole quarantine program uh, hadn't been vaccinated, uh, and this is quite problematic because all by now, all our frontline workers, and that includes anybody associated with anybody that flies in, should be vaccinated. But the driver wasn't, and he picked up a crew 
from a freight um, airline and took them to their hotel. He uh, picked up Delta from one of them. And then a number of days later, when, of course, he became infectious but asymptomatic, and, of course, he missed not being tested after work, uh, and went to a very large shopping centre in a very um, popular suburb of Bondi, and then managed to, uh, unbeknownst to him, inside the shopping mall, uh, infect several people. Now, now the interesting thing was that the contact tracers believed that they'd found most of everybody, but they were using very anxious words like, this is fleeting uh, exposure. They've used CCTV and they're quite concerned that most of the early cases did not have 15 minutes of exposure within a metre and a half. Now, that rhetoric of anxiety did not match their um, response and they believed that they had plenty of time to be able to find all the cases because they were relying on excellent contact tracing. But with Delta... It's twice as infectious as um, alpha. And they'd seen, witnessed in CCTV, that you didn't have to be close to the um, source. And in fact, potentially, um, you could be sharing um, in a kind of a, a plume of exhaled particles from an infected person. So uh, they didn't lock down in the first few days and by the end of the first week they had 25 cases they didn't lock down then and then by the end of the second uh, week they'd had an increase by about 27 times hmm. uh, so it, we are now in a situation where we've inadvertently sent delta uh, to south australia and victoria so if we're not careful, we are in a lockdown, but not a very tough lockdown. If we're not very careful, we will go into a third wave. And you're in lockdown right now in in Sydney? Correct, yes. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit more, I think, about what that's meant throughout the different phases of the pandemic. But right now, is that a restriction? I mean, how strenuous is that restriction? Not very strenuous at all for people who are office workers and can work from home. Mm. But we have many people in um, Sydney who uh, can't work from home, who are um, who do you know um, essential services such as delivering food, uh, selling food, uh, work on building sites, um, and and therefore they're finding it very difficult. And they had been travelling a lot. And in fact, one of the hotspots in the southwestern Sydney area has about mm, about seven, at least seven percentage points higher of people who can't work from home than the average across Sydney. It's multicultural. They have um, more uh, uh, people than the average for uh, living at home. So they have multi-generational households of five or more people. And um, this then has acted as an accelerator. So they're finding it hard. For those of us who can work from home, it's pretty easy. You're allowed to go out and exercise or buy food, only one person per family. But there's no night curfew, which there should be, because we found people playing cards with each other and right. um, you know, young people uh, playing, you know, video games and not hearing messages because they're not part of mainstream reading newspapers or watching the news. And so what's the vaccination uh, rate look like right now? Gosh, the vaccination rate in Australia is, uh, is woeful. Um, I think that's probably a reasonable description. Um, not all essential services have been vaccinated with one dose. We now have, as of a couple of weeks ago, everyone in aged care has been offered one dose of AstraZeneca or Pfizer. Um, but we have um, staff 
who haven't received any doses. It hasn't been mandatory for carers in aged care to have the vaccine. Uh, that will change in August where it will be mandatory. And yet they have to have the influenza vaccine. So we've known about this situation where uh, we had an enormous number of deaths in aged care last year down in Victoria. We had the first case of, a, of an outbreak in um, uh, the New Marsh uh, aged care in New South Wales. Lessons weren't learnt from that and uh, carers were working across campuses, across different uh, facilities, and that is a recipe for uh, rapid spread. Uh, they weren't uh, given a daily test um, with a rapid antigen test because the community, because the authorities believe the accuracy is not high enough and therefore they're concerned that some people will slip through. Now, my point is, is that some of the accuracies of these rapid antigen tests are as high as 99.96% or even 100%. But if even if they were 95%, you know, they perform particularly well in that asymptomatic phase and you could be requiring wherever possible the care staff to wear a mask and have, and have um, a real-time test during the outbreak in the aged care, they were given a test and had to wait for the results. But you can't do that for 15 minutes. I mean, 15 minutes of the rapid antigen test, the rapid saliva was, you know, four to six hours. So it's often done after the shift instead of before the shift. So uh, we don't seem to be embracing some of the science and technology that's used overseas. Uh, so it it is problematic. And you're dealing mostly with a supply issue at, at this point. I mean, in the United States, oh, yeah, it's getting, an yeah, uptake issue. Yeah. yeah, it's getting back to the to the vaccine. Sorry, I, I got distracted. No, no, um, <laughs> sorry. Yes. Um, so in Australia, I think uh, sometimes the community is a bit gas, you know, gaslighting, you know, that term where it's your fault, not ours. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a lot of vaccine hesitancy. So what we do have is no vaccine for the young. The uh, uh, target, the, the Australian Therapeutics um, uh, um, Administration um, group have quite rightly identified that the risk of thrombo thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome and clots increases the younger you get. So, you know, once you're in your 50s and your 40s, that risk is high. And so they then moved the Pfizer um, vaccine up for anybody up to 59 years of age, quite rightly. And then, of course, Delta um, was uh, had an outbreak in, in both Victoria and Sydney. And the authorities are very anxious, and so they should be, with very few people vaccinated who are in that group who are most at risk of acquiring and spreading it. So the young aren't at risk of death uh, and very little risk of hospitalization, although we do have some people in a couple, one in their 20s and one in their 30s in the hospital. It's very rare uh, with, from COVID. So the elderly are being protected. They're being asked to have that second dose. And I believe they, they will rush out there to have their second dose. They're being asked to consider having it at eight weeks and then they are asked to have it at six weeks. Uh, that reduces your efficacy, the efficacy, but that's not such an enormous problem if um, you get a booster later. So the efficacy drops from for symptomatic from 82% to um, six weeks or less uh, to about between 60 and 55%. But if you have a booster later with say Pfizer, then that shouldn't be hugely problematic. But I don't think that it will be very helpful to have AstraZeneca given to the young because they'll have to wait six weeks for that second dose. And they're still, and they're not talking about a, 
that second dose being a mix and match with uh, with Pfizer for the young. And they don't, they need to be protected from infection. And Pfizer has a good level of infection protection, mm. uh, even against Delta, much better than AstraZeneca. So I think we need to get supplies. We don't have any. We've been promised 4.5 million in August. That's a drop in the ocean that will only look after mm. um, 2 million people. And perhaps the authorities will extend that period instead of 14 days between dose one and dose two, they'll extend it further to try to cover more people. Remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to Mary Louise McLaws today about COVID-19 in Australia, and I appreciate that really um, very helpful landscape view of what's happening in Australia right now. I, I want to ask you, you know, kind of a little bit of a background question about your own professional trajectory. So um, before we talk a, a little bit more about COVID, can you tell me like some of your previous experiences with infectious disease control? Mm -hmm. Okay, so a very long time ago, I worked in a, a diagnostic microbiology department and decided that I'd actually like to do something different. I was going to work for um, an NGO, but the country I was going to work in uh, had war breakout. So um, an epidemiologist uh, is not great during war. So I went back to university and did a postgrad degree uh, in uh, tropical health and um, public health. And I then uh, was offered a job because I was working in patient safety related to hospital infection. My expertise is setting up surveillance. And um, I was offered a job over dinner because in those days you were allowed to offer a job to somebody without having an interview. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, my, my fiance at the time, who's my husband, uh, and I were out to dinner with a man who became the president of the uh, World um, AIDS Association, uh, David Cooper, a wonderful man, um, offered me a job. And because he'd been asking me all these questions about what would I do if I was in HIV? And I was telling him all of these outrageous ideas. And then he offered me a job. And and look, I, I had to think because I was I was I had just done some um, surveillance of hospital infection and I couldn't get any research money. It was really hard. Um, because in those days, uh, you know, to err is human and um, they were living with a very high level of infection. Uh, so, but but more importantly, I realized this is this was going to be the first pandemic I was going to work with. And this man was going to be a wonderful mentor, and he was. So I moved into HIV, and uh, it was a very sad pandemic. Uh, you know, initially you went to a lot of funerals uh, with colleagues and uh, people that you knew were your research assistants on the ground. So it was a very stressful time, but I actually learned a lot um, of um, about behavior. So even though my expertise was surveillance and um, predicting you know, models, uh, what I really learned that really helped my career was appreciating behavior and geography and how it can move um, diseases. And and at that point, did you then also become um, involved with World Health Organization, or you know when did when did you decide to get involved with sort of global health yeah. moves? Well, then I um, was then I got a phone call asking me to apply for a job as an academic, and um, again I hadn't. Can you, you can see none of my career has been planned at all. 
and I thought, I'm not sure I can teach well and I don't know about this. Um, So anyway, I took the job and then my then um, boss, uh, Professor Jim Lawson, had previously run the Department of Health uh, in New South Wales and he was um, a big thinker and he encouraged me to to get involved with WHO. And so I have, since I joined as an academic, been involved in with WHO one way or another, either um, being short-term WHO advisor, or I've actually advised WHO on patient safety issues, or um, I got involved with um, SARS in, and reviewed uh, SARS um, response. Um, so, oh, and then um, pandemic influenza, and yeah, I think that's about, this is about the fourth pandemic. And, but mostly in between time, I um, look at patient safety when it comes to preventing infection. And um, I was a WHO advisor to China when they were developing their surveillance system um, because you know part of preventing infection spread is collecting good data and keeping on top of it all the time. So with those experiences already um, in in surveillance, infectious disease surveillance, HIV, AIDS, pandemic, WHO, cast your mind back, if if you can, to January. And what were you thinking when you saw news coming out of Wuhan? Well, January of last year, I should say. We've been in this so long, I have to specify which year. Sorry. Which year? Yes, yes, yes. So uh, my first thoughts were that I had uh, written a report with um, a a really brilliant uh, epidemiologist from Beijing about lessons learned. And one of the lessons that we learned was to ring fence a city if you can and um, stop it from spreading. Anyway, that man uh, went off and ring fenced Wuhan. So my first thought it was, um, I wonder if Liang will be doing this. And uh, then the next moment in February, at the end of January, because, you know, when the World Health Organization calls a fake public health emergency of international concern, that's when your heart drops because that's when they call a pandemic, that's an administrative call where it says it's crossed a couple of regions for you know WHO administrative regions. When they call a fake, that's when it's very, very serious. They don't call fakes very often. And of course, so my heart sank when they called a fake. And I have a colleague who was my um, lovely PhD student and she had done three Ebola missions. She's fantastic. And we were chatting on the phone about what would you do now? And uh, just chatting about it. And then I get an email from WHO inviting me to a roadmap about what what is needed. And so I went on the 11th of February, 11th and 12th for a meeting about what is what knowledge is needed. And it was the most... It was, of course, you're worried about about China, you're worried about the world. Um, But one thing that was not a worry was knowing that there was, I don't know what a collective of brilliant people is, but there was a collective of the world's best vaccinologists, virologists, social scientists, you know, epidemiologists, infection control experts. And And I knew that with that collective, and the leadership of WHO that um, that this would move in a very positive manner. So then, if you could break it down for us, I know it's a it's a long story. So, but maybe for the first part at least for Australia, what were the first sort of public health moves that were made? Well, we were slow at first. Um, so one of the things that Australia did was get a mathematical model to identify which countries to shut its borders down. Now, uh, the International Health Regulations of 2005 was written post-SARS, and SARS 
um, R naught, you know, that, that transmission rate was much lower than uh, COVID. And in that um, regulation, it dissuades members from closing borders for all sorts of humanitarian reasons. Um, but, you know, in retrospect, they need to review that because stopping movements of people has really helped to reduce spread. And, and so the Australian government initially toyed with the idea of herd immunity from a natural infection the way England did. And there was a lot of discussion uh, from a lot of scientists outside of government saying that this was non-evidential. And in the meantime, a, um, uh, a model is being run and a couple of countries were chosen. And it told me that they had no experience in running an outbreak because a, no, a, a very little understanding of the Chinese culture where they're very urbane and wealthy. And that attitude of it will stay in China may have been okay in the 70s, but we're talking about, you know, 2019, mm. where the Chinese will, will go to all ends of the world for business, seeing friends and enjoying, you know, tourism. And that's what happened. So when they closed the border to China, of course, we still had people coming in with COVID from Iran, from uh, the US, uh, from Italy. And then Italy was closed. Uh, we closed our border to Italy and Iran. And then eventually the penny dropped and we closed the border to everybody. But that was quite, um, quite shocking to me that they would use a mathematical model rather than understanding how human behavior and geography moves, um, moves disease. So is there some recent um, history of, of pandemic um, or even epidemic in Australia that was a base that had already sort of laid the ground, groundwork for communicating yeah. with the public about how to act? I mean, I think that's, that's been the case. Uh -huh. The United States certainly faced this, this problem. People rely on the CDC, but, you know, not since mm -hmm. 1918 and not even then, really, was there a centralized governmental response. So there wasn't there had to be yeah. a lot, and then the Trump, which is a separate issue, but um, there wasn't a lot to build on there in yeah, terms yeah. of talking to the public. Well, well, we were like America, except for America was probably the most prepared country in the whole world, given that America has the CDC, which had, I mean, every epidemiologist goes to the CDC for training and for, and for conferences, but yet it uh, happened to America by, I think, by stealth. I mean, it just snuck up on America and all of a sudden you had it in your doorstep. And the same with Australia. We don't have a CDC. So uh, we have several advisory groups, but none of them have a recent pandemic experience with seeing what works very simply. So we like to use very complicated models, but very simple analysis of I mean, for example, we now have Delta in our multicultural community, and yet we're not very good at thinking uh, preventive. So we're very reactionary instead of proactive. And if there was going to be a community, which happened in Victoria that's going to get COVID, it would be a multicultural community. You go to a country, you're poor, you all live together, uh, and you've got an extended family, and that's great for spreading a disease and you work long hours, you don't hear public messaging and you don't get paid a lot. So it, it has everything going for it for a disease. And instead of us rushing to look after our multicultural community, whom we love, but we've neglected, um, of course it got into both the multicultural community in, in Victoria and now here in Sydney. So we we did not have a memory of how to do this post HIV. Now, HIV was very different as a pandemic. One of the groups that took over control and did a brilliant job was the gay community. And that community brought forward in Australia's mindset about equality, 
about not blaming, about, um, and, and we had this terrible ad that was you know, the bowling ball ad with the Grim Reaper that everyone remembers, but was not very helpful. And it made it look as if you could catch HIV from just random, randomly instead of actually, mm. yeah, instead of targeting information. So, um, and again, we've got another ad where a young person is gasping for air, but not mm. realizing that that's not going to get the young. You've got to get the young by explaining their big social connection and make it fun and, I don't know, bring an Elton John on, you know. Right. But, um, but we, are, we don't have um, a memory about what worked well in HIV. And certainly that took ages to get, get, get it going because you also had that inequality and that pejorativeness that then eventually changed. And, I mean, we have equal... Uh, rights regardless of your sexuality and marriage and adopting children and all of that and and that occurred because the gay community worked very hard at reminding people that they were human um, but that's the part we don't need now but what we do need is that same galvanizing of the community to come together to help themselves so where we sit back and wait for the community wait for the authorities to help instead of saying how can we get on board with this and help each other? And how long were the borders closed? The borders have remained closed from I the see. 20th of March last year. So we've had a border closure, although in a very strange fashion and classic Australian laissez-faire. So everybody has to come into quarantine, except for if you get exemption. And we've had some exemptions which have caused problems uh, where uh, the infection has escaped. But we are going to have to think about moving quarantine into people's homes. And rather that, than that being exemptions, it's very scientific that they have a geolocator so they don't wander off up the street to the coffee shop, that they have take-home tests. Um, but we're very slow to embrace technology. Something has happened in our culture where we become very, very bureaucratic and, mm. and not embracing. So the Netherlands uses um, uh, the, uh, the rapid antigen test. The UK are using it. The US imported some from Australia to try to keep up with the demand for testing. And they're not perfect, but you're dealing, if you're wanting to catch as many as you can and disrupt life as little as possible, it's a perfect opportunity to bring it in, use it between borders, uh, because each province or state in Australia has their own health department. They are legally um, entitled to have a different approach to the way they handle things. And when they think one state has more of an infection problem than another, they will put up the borders. Now, what they could do is use a rapid antigen test at that border until we start getting more people vaccinated and then be able to say, oh, you're safe to come in. And, and you said there's not a strong anti-vaccination uh, mm. culture in Australia. What about some of the other things like masks and social distancing, mm. various other, uh, you talked about contact tracing um, before. What's the culture around that? People yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, do so, that when it's requested and required? I mean, in the United States, that's odd. I know mm -hmm. to the rest of the world that a, a mask has become a flag uh, of one's ideology, but has, has that played out in Australia as well? So uh, let me just to remind your, your listeners that in Australia, we have a high uptake. We have anti-vaxxers, no doubt about it, um, but they are, they're not given a lot of oxygen in Australia, but there, but there are anti-vaxxers. So for the vaccination of zero to five-year-olds, we are close to 94, 95% uptake, which is remarkable. But our government does do sensible things in giving lots of carrots and the implied stick where you might, kid might not be able to come to school if there's an outbreak in something. And most parents will get their child vaccinated. And then there's the teenage vaccination against the human papillomavirus. And boys get it and girls get it at 15. And that's in the 80s. 
So that's pretty good. Where That needs to be higher. The flu vaccine is um, now it's required of all um, carers and hospital uh, workers, and that's very good. Um, but the reason we don't have a high vaccine uptake so far, and we've only had 9.5 million doses rolled out, and about, only about 10% of Australia has been fully vaccinated. We need about minimum of 67% up to preferably 80%. What you will find is as soon as Pfizer hits the ground, all of the 59 and younger to 20, because we are not yet vaccinating 16-year-olds, uh, will take it up. They will. Mm. So during the outbreak in Victoria recently, because we, um, you know, they had the Kappa Delta, uh, it took uh, about 28 days to bring it under control. During that time, they offered vaccination and they had to turn people away because they were running out of vaccine. And that's a really good sign. Hmm. I, I'm in South Korea and I think that's exactly what we're going to see here. I mean, it's really been a supply hmm. issue and it's been yeah. kind of creeping along. Country managed infection control very well, but the the thinking was that vaccine would be available sooner so that you got that payoff faster and there was some return to yeah. something that appeared normal. But I think once it's broadly available in society here by October, the rate is going to be uh, as high as anywhere else in the world. But it's just getting there. And I think this yes. is such a long summer. And it looks like you're, you're going to be feeling the exact same thing in Australia. Exactly. Now, now getting to your question about mask use, we had mm, last year, I think it was, some, uh, I, I mean, just a handful of people who had a hissy fit about being asked to wear a mask, and then they got fined, so the police fined them, mm. and then there's no, there's no um, uh, anti-mask response, really. Um, Whereas, even though we are located in Asia, we have a high Asian population who have very good mask use. Um, we've adopted it pretty well, considering that we've never adopted it before. Um, and we, this latest Delta outbreak, um, people were asked to wear a mask when they weren't exercising outside. Now, that's the problem because Australians are very good at working out loopholes in um, instructions and you don't give them any opportunity to interpret. And so people would dawdle with their dog and they were exercising so they weren't wearing a mask. And then they'd see somebody they knew and they'd have a chat. And of course they were walking with their children because they're exercising. So, um, now there are some, you know, people going around fining people and now the penny is dropping where, oh, I have to wear a mask. And I think that Australians are very cooperative and very peaceful and masks is, are not political. It's just that you've got to tell Australians exactly what to do and they'll do it. I mean, when you drive overseas, um, and driving and speeding is very much a public health issue. Um, we Australians find it quite surprising at the speed people drive because we Australians are given very clear instructions about how fast we're allowed to go and there are always police who will fine you. And the average person doesn't uh, speed deliberately. So, uh, I mean, there's the occasional young person who is probably slightly depressed and will do some foolish behavior when they're depressed but generally Australians are highly cooperative so but you've got to tell them exactly what they have to do. One of the aspects of the COVID era in Australia that has been um, in international news was uh, efforts made to protect indigenous populations mm -hmm. in the country and I know it's a diverse uh, you know group and uh, it's all over the country in different places. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't ask you necessarily to have to generalize, but I am curious about that. What struck you about that? Was there a plan um, to, well, or, or well, were they given see, autonomy to do this? 
They were given autonomy, but they took autonomy. I mean, right. um, they are That's a really well yeah, they they were really well organized group, and they looked after their elderly. They looked after their community really brilliantly. Um, people were very concerned uh, that Delta or Alpha would get into Victoria, and uh, the Victorian, um, sorry, not Victoria, um, Northern Territory, and the Northern Territory government was very careful uh, when to close a border or when to ensure that um, they would how they would keep out. Uh, any circulating virus, but the the indigenous community uh, take uh, should take full credit for uh, their. I mean, they are exemplars. I mean, WHO has um, a report, an independent report, written about what should happen next for preparation and preparedness, and one is uh, a total community leadership, not just from the top down, but the community. And, and I think that the Indigenous community are a, um, are a group that should be uh, spoken to about how you get communities on board, particularly our migrant communities, to look after each other because they were, they, and they have been and will continue to be exemplary. Uh, something quite similar with Native American populations in the United States who had, uh, first of all, they had control, took control, exerted it, and particularly with multi, and I wonder if this is true in Australia as well, because so many Native Americans live in multi-generational um, style. Mm -hmm. um, there was, you know, infection can move very quickly through a community and the role of elders in the community is paramount. And so you just don't take chances with that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, well, that's the same uh, in our indigenous population here. Uh, and I should tell you that uh, we have a, um, tradition of starting a meeting off with um, a, an acknowledgement to country. And I actually work on the Bedigal people's country and I um, respect the, and send my respect to elders past, present and emerging and any indigenous um, and Torres Strait Islands that's listening. So apologies for not doing that sooner. Well, thank you for that. And that's very much acknowledged and, and appreciated. And um, I wonder if, um, we could talk now about the healthcare system. So based on the numbers, one might say, well, this hasn't been enough to overwhelm the healthcare system. And yet, I, you know, COVID reaches sometimes out of the way places where there's only one hospital or there's a small staff. It's a different kind of care. And we've listened to essential workers around the world talk about what it means to treat a COVID patient. It's a different kind of treatment. It's incredibly laborious for staff and the mental health impacts are there as well. I, I wonder if you have anything to say to that and the way that the essential care workers have, have held up during this time. Well, we've hardly had any hospitalization in Australia. I mean, uh, one of the uh, shameful uh, experiences in Australia was when we had the second wave in Victoria and it went through the um, over 20 residential aged care facility uh, facilities and uh, they weren't hospitalized. So when an elderly person in aged care was sick, they were kept in, in, in that uh, facility and, being, and they were given hospital in the home support, uh, but it's not quite the same as um, support in a in a large teaching hospital. And we had over 600 um, die. And uh, there was a review about, about how this occurred. And of course, there are human rights when it comes to being elderly and you should be able to choose whether or not you get uh, your public health. And in Australia, we have a wonderful public health system where we all pay a proportion of our salary um, to uh, it's the same proportion, but it's just different depending on how much you're earning, to um, uh, to the government, and your care is free. Um, but, of course, if you want surgery by private specialist or private specialist care, you'll have to pay for that yourself, but a portion of that is paid for by the government because it comes under Medicare. So many people, uh, so, so people who are ill will go to 
health services and get cared for early so they don't have terrible chronic illness as we perceive they do in America. So yes, the those on a lower socioeconomic level often have uh, very complex uh, and more uh, comorbidities for many reasons. Uh, it's certainly not a lack of access to hospitals. Um, so our uh, we also have the flying doctor. So anybody living in regional areas, if they have had COVID that needs hospitalization, they get um, picked up and flown to the nearest teaching hospital. And um, uh, so we have not had a problem with our hospitals being overrun with uh, uh, with admissions at all. This, what you were just describing is, so two thirds at least then of the deaths in Australia from COVID have been related to this elder care facility and the, and the breakdown there. Correct, yes. Yes, it was uh, very painful for the community and even more painful for the families. Uh, they couldn't see their loved ones. Uh, yeah. They, uh, I mean, uh, during lockdown, there were very um, restricted uh, funerals and even sometimes the funerals were put off. And that's very difficult for certain cultures as well. Uh, so it, there will be a lot of PTSD uh, and depression uh, uh, you know, around that issue. And and that issue of human rights mm. of the elderly have to be uh, examined very carefully post and during now, um, post COVID, but mm. certainly during COVID to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Because many of the elderly, to keep them safe, they've been locked in their rooms. And, um, while we are all in lockdown, uh, most of us are allowed to go out to get exercise. So that should be a human right extended to those who can walk and who choose to go walking. Um, so it's certainly that all of that needs to be looked at very carefully um, after the fact that we don't mistreat our elderly while we're trying to protect them, but not given we're not, we're not allowing them to have rights or decisions. Mind you, though, when you live in a shared home, because basically these facilities are still a shared home and not independent units, um, you do have to give over a lot of individual rights because mm. you share common space, you know, dining rooms, sitting rooms, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so I think that... Uh, when, when infection control and uh, plans are made, they should always have a human right lawyer there to if, because if they think something's wrong, then the um, experts need to, to come up with other alternatives as well that are just as safe or in addition. Is there a culture of memorialization in Australia that is sort of snapped into place at at this time, I mean, obituaries, and we've seen around the world different attempts to try to make sense of big numbers, in some cases, not even such big numbers, but still important numbers. No, uh, there isn't in Australia. We certainly have mm. a very strong culture of memorializing and, um, and giving respect uh, to those in wars. So we have Anzac Day, the Australian New Zealand um, uh, Corps is service corps, uh, and that is uh, once a year, and it's it's very important. Um, if you were going to try to compare it in America, it would be like Thanksgiving Day. You know, the, the Anzac Day is really important, and and that is memorialized. But the nine hundred odd, nine hundred twelve that are dead are not memorialized. So individual families grieve and yeah. and try to cope. Uh, and it's interesting. Uh, I um, I think it's I think it's something that we've missed. We are not giving respect, and then that respect reminds those in um, authority to that they are um, they are obliged to stop death and stop infection. 
almost up on time in my COVID calls discussion mm -hmm. here with Mary Louise McClaws about COVID in Australia. And Mary Louise, I, I, asked, I just want to ask you one more question, which is sort of back to your own trajectory through this. Um, I guess, I, I mean, the question is kind of how has this changed you or the changed the way you've thought about what you knew coming into this? I, I guess another way to ask the question is what kind of changes do you expect to come out of COVID mm -hmm. in Australia, but I'm particularly interested in your own trajectory, given how interesting your, you know, your career pathway has been coming to this time. Well, I've been very, very privileged to work with the World Health Organization for well, 17, 18 years, thereabouts, maybe 20. And uh, what, what it does do is it gives you the opportunity to see people from different cultures being incredibly clever and bringing to the table lots of skills and information. It makes you more outward looking so that um, if somebody who has who had worked with WHO was running uh, this pandemic in Australia, they'd be picking up the phone to Asia, to Korea, um, to, to China, to Taiwan saying, what did you get right? What wouldn't you do ever again? Um, and and being much more outwardly focused with uh, with with our neighbours. Um, so, but also WHO teaches you a framework of ethics. So when you do think about what, whatever guideline you're working on with a group of people, um, you always have to check yourself. If I'm expecting people to get vaccinated, what does that mean for those that have a religion that they can't get vaccinated for many reasons? And um, and so it um, it helps you to constantly put yourself in somebody else's shoes at the same time trying to have the best outcome for the majority because that's what public health is. Uh, so it's just been a reminder of, of how we need to think um, collectively, but within that collective think, make sure that you're not um, uh, uh, disrespecting other people's um, cultural and religious needs while you're doing that. Um, and what I really hope is that we don't forget the lessons that we've learned, because this is not going to be the only pandemic in the near future, because with any climate change, you'll have a very large population movement, you'll have animal movement, and when the two come together and you know, and an increase in humidity and temperature, we will have potentially the risk of um, diseases that are zoonotic and and therefore another pandemic. So let's hope that we or that we come together, particularly in the Asia Pacific region, mm. and learn from each other so that all of this collective um, knowledge doesn't get lost and have a really uh, honest uh, meeting about what you what each of us have done wrong so that we can not do that again. That's such an important note to end on. I just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. The next COVID calls episode will be on Tuesday and my guest will be Professor Hyoman Kim It'll be at 5.30 p.m. Korea time, just like today's episode. We'll be talking about public health and vaccination in South Korea. And I want to thank my guest for making time in her busy schedule, Mary Louise McClaws. Thank you so much for joining me today and for um, sharing your wisdom and this experience of COVID-19 in Australia. Thank you for having me. Please stay safe. Stay healthy, everyone. We will see you next time on COVID Calls.